0: Let's bow our heads and let's talk to the Lord together. Father, it's a perfectly beautiful time of year. We look around and we see the flowers with all the colors and the beautiful sky with the clouds and it just reminds us of you. And for those of us that have the opportunity to look at the sea or to look at a pond, see the ripple of the water and the waves, it's a reminder, dear God, that you put all this in place. As we have the opportunity to be with friends and with family and to have meaningful relationships, all of that's a reminder, dear God, that you're the creator, not just of all of nature, but of all of us. And Father, for us to just stand and behold the glory of your creation is a witness to us that you are and that you exist. But Father, that doesn't help us to have an eternal relationship with you. It requires something more, Father, that you give to us by grace, that your Holy Spirit would help us to see that we are all sinners. And that all of us, without exception, fall short of the glory that is your Son, Jesus, who lived without sin. And Father, as we come to that realization, we begin to understand the glory of the salvation that you make available by faith through grace. Father, I want to thank you for calling us into that relationship. I want to thank you for giving to us not just creation, but that you have redeemed us. And that that relationship will now exist forever and ever. Father, we sure have made a mess out of what you've given us. When we look around at the world we live in, Father, there are nations that are at war and nations that are rattling their sabers as if they want to go to war. There are nations and individuals and who are thinking just of themselves and not of you and what you would have for our lives. And so very often, Lord, in our own country, we see that manifested We see it at every level, in government, in business, in education, and sometimes, Lord, as we look in the mirror, we see that selfishness. Father, I pray for our nation today. I pray that a revival might take place in the United States of America, not just to restore our prosperity or our dignity, but to restore an element of peace until Jesus comes again. And that we might be a witness to other peoples and the rest of the world. Father, when we come together to worship, very often we carry burdens that we don't reveal to other people. Concerns that we have about our own health and about the health of someone we love dearly. Oftentimes, dear God, we have a concern about somebody else's relationship and what it is not and what it should be. Oftentimes, dear God, we've lost our way and we see other people who have lost their purpose in life. I pray for the comfort of your Holy Spirit. I pray for the counsel of your Holy Spirit that you would take hold of us and that you would give us purpose and that you'd give us an assurance that you are God, that you're a sovereign God and that we're your created children and that you're mightily at work in this world. And I pray, dear God, that we would live not just by sight but by faith. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing at Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. I thank you that you're bringing your servant Bill McCutcheon and his family to the community and to the church. And I pray your blessing on that transition. I pray your blessing, dear God, on all of us who are a part of this church. And I pray, O oh Father, that this church in the years to come would have even a brighter future than it's had a bright past. And that you would use this church to be a living testimony for you in this community and throughout the world. Help us, dear God, to be a humble people and to rely on you. And to look to you, dear God, to give direction to not only the church, but to our individual lives. Thank you for your love through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. For we do come to you solely in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me. We're going to be studying this morning from the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter. The Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter, and we're going to start with the 36th verse. Please open your Bibles and... Find the passage, and please keep your Bibles open as I walk us through the passage so that you can see why I say the things that I say. The Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter, we're going to begin with the 36th verse and study through the 44th. Once you have found your place, please look up at me. Let's pray. Father, you put on the hearts of men in ages past both the thoughts and now the words that we're about to read and that we're about to hear preached. I pray, dear God, that you would cause them to jump off the page at us. I pray that you'd capture our attention and that you'd massage our hearts that you'd renew our minds and you'd get us ready for this next week. So please, Father, let this be a very special time when your Holy Spirit is very active in us. For I ask it in the very precious name of Jesus. Amen. You know, if I were to come out there and start looking around and... If I were to look real closely at young folks and some middle-aged folks and some of the rest of us, I would find we all have something in common. We all have ears and noses and lips, but you know what else we have in common? We have a little thing right here and right here called a tear duck. I did some reading on tear ducks. Have you ever read about tear ducks? It's not a real interesting topic. I don't encourage you to do that. But since I was going to use it for an opening, I thought I ought to know something about them. Tear ducts serve a purpose. Sometimes when there is an irritant or a pain, sometimes when there's an emotional change, tears come out of those tear ducts. And they do really relieve some of the tension, don't they? We've all experienced that. I learned something else. Men and women, boys and girls, we all have them. It's not exclusively a trait just for females, but all of us who are males have them also. I learned something else. I learned that sometimes they get blocked. And when they get blocked from a physical thing blocking the duck or from infection or from some sort of an injury that it causes pressure and that infection usually takes place. But I learned something else and I learned it as a boy. There's another way to block tear ducts, particularly for those of us who are males. My big brother, who is with the Lord today, when he spoke, I knew he was always telling the truth because he was 10 years older than I am. So I listened to him. He was also significantly bigger than I was. So I listened to him. And one day he walked into our bedroom and I was crying. And George looked at me and just shook his head and he said, don't you know men don't cry? And you know what I did? I said, oh, no, I didn't know that. For the next decade and a half, I didn't shed a tear. You couldn't make me cry. I mean, George told me I wasn't supposed to. So I quit until my granddaddy died. And the most unexpected thing happened when granddad died. At his funeral, I started crying. And I cried <clears throat> off and on for about three days because I loved him so very much. When the emotion whelms up inside of you, male or female, it's quite appropriate to cry And things don't go well if you don't get that flushed out. Now, let me tell you why I mentioned that to you. In our passage today, we're going to see one of the two examples of when Jesus wept. And I want you to see the context in which that happened. Look with me, if you would, at the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter, beginning with the 36th verse. And listen as God speaks to us. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God, joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, "'Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord.'" Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. May God truly add his blessing and the moving of his Holy Spirit to the reading of his word. Let me just take you back and set this up. We all know, I trust, that in the Christian year, this is the Sunday we've set aside and called Palm Sunday. And we get that concept from Scripture. Jesus had made his way to the Mount of Olivet, the Mount of Olives. He was on the east side of that mount. There's a village, Bethany. In that village were some dear friends. Do you remember who lived there? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Brothers, brother and sisters. Something very significant had just happened when Jesus was in that village. Lazarus had died. The sisters sent for Jesus, and he tarried a bit and didn't hurry to get to them. And when he did arrive and went to the place where Lazarus was buried, Scripture tells us the first time that we have recorded that Jesus wept because he loved Lazarus. You remember what he did next? He called Lazarus forth and Lazarus came out and they unwrapped the burial garments and he was as alive as you and I. Now that's an exciting part of the story, except he had to die again. I always think about that. And I, for one, would like to go ahead and be with Jesus forever and not come back. But he came back. And word began to spread, and it spread to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was only a couple of miles away. Here's Mount Olivet, and Bethany is on the east side, and there's a road that comes around the south side, and when you get around to the western side of Mount Olivet, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Olives, is on that western side if you go down into the Kidron Valley and right back up on the very next mound is where they built the city of Jerusalem. Jesus leaves with his disciples and surely some other people and he starts around that two-mile walk to Jerusalem. This is the first day of the last week of his life on earth and he's going to the city of Jerusalem knowing what awaits him. As he gets around on the south side of the Mount of Olivet, he sends two of his disciples and says, there's another village off to the left, off to the south, called Bethpage, and I want you to go there, and you're going to find a colt there, and I want you to bring that donkey to me that I might ride into Jerusalem. Most of us would want to have gotten the largest, best-looking donkey strongest animal we could find to parade into the city. Wouldn't you have wanted that? I mean, I think that's my natural instinct. Maybe a big palomino. Instead, he wants a donkey. You know why? It wasn't about him. He wasn't coming to get the glory. He had come to earth to give his life for sins he didn't commit, that you and I might be saved through his death and through the shedding of his blood. His agenda was very different. <clears throat> As the disciples come back with the donkey, Scripture tells us that they start taking off their outer garment, their robe, and they put it on the back of the donkey to make a more comfortable seat. And Scripture even suggests they lifted Jesus and put him on the donkey. And then they come on around the city toward Jerusalem. As they're coming toward Jerusalem, there's a reception that takes place. You can read it in 36, 37, and 38. Some of the people who were in Bethany are with him in addition to the disciples. Other people who are in the city have heard about the most recent miracle. People are talking in the city. It's the time of the Passover. People have come from all over the civilized world to be there, and they start coming out of the city to meet him. Very excited, looking forward to being in his presence, looking forward possibly to hear him speak, and they start praising God. And they're praising God because they know this man has worked miracles. You know the irony in all of this story? As you read the narrative, like so very often, their cheers and their excitement and their adoration is short-lived. It's an emotion on their part. And Jesus is about a very different task than what they think. They start calling out to God and, and praising him. And they're praising him that he has sent one who will be king. Scripture says that. Not the kind of king they expected. They had lost their prosperity as a nation. They were under the dominion of the Roman Empire. They'd lost their independence. They very much wanted to be reestablished among the nations. And they wanted that prosperity and that independence. And they looked at this man who's riding on the back of a donkey and they see in him the possibility of being reestablished. And that's absolutely not what Jesus came for. Don't you have a tendency to say, Lord, fix our economy. Lord, fix our country. But that's not what he's coming to do. He's coming for people to establish a relationship that will last forever and forever. I find it very interesting, and I'd like to talk with you for several days about what I'm about to say, but I promise you I won't. We get so caught up in people and think that other people are going to solve our problems, that other people somehow have figured it out. And what we do is we give them homage, we give them attention, we give them our money, because somehow we think that they're going to respond to us. And I'm so tempted to just run this little litany of names of famous people and say, why do we watch people on television who have been living out of wedlock and birthed a child out of wedlock, which must grieve God something terrible? And we allow that person to be maybe the second most important person in their particular field because we watch them and their sponsors pay them millions of dollars. Folks, there's something just basically wrong with that. Why do we look at people who are on the big screen and get so excited about them and want to dress like they dress, want to drive what they drive, want to live like they live, and then you read about the horrendous things that are happening in their private lives. Not once, but repeatedly, a lifestyle where their life is just crumbling. We get our priorities wrong. We're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be unique and distinct. We ought to be different. And we need to break some of that fellowship that we have with a fallen world, and we need to become light and salt, and hope for other people. If you read on down in the 39th and 40th verses, you see that not everybody was glad to see Jesus. There was some rejection. Some of the Pharisees had come out of Jerusalem. They'd made their way both into Bethany and along the way, and they were in that second wave of people who came out onto the side of Mount Olivet. They were Pharisees. And don't you sense they were interdispersed? And finally, some of them can't stand it. They can't stand the fact that this whole multitude of people are paying so much attention to Jesus. And some of them start to call out and say, Teacher, rebuke your people. Rebuke your disciples. Get them to stop doing this. Now those pharisees knew they couldn't take too strong a stand scripture says they knew that the people were very supportive of Jesus at this time and they knew that they might turn on them so what they do is a minimal rejection but what they're doing is they're saying to Jesus you are merely a teacher get control of your pupils You know, there are a lot of religions in our world today. It will astound you if you take time to look at the list of them. And there are a lot of cults in our country and around the world. They have something in common. Most of them do not deny the historical existence of Jesus. Most of them say, yes, this man named Jesus did live. He did live in the Middle East. And he was a renowned teacher. Folks, that's not why he came. It is true. He was a renowned teacher. He knew the truth and spoke the truth. What he came for was to be the living Savior in our midst. And they're not acknowledging that he's the promised Messiah. They're only acknowledging that he was a wise man who could teach. Listen very carefully with a discerning ear. Because you will hear around you people in the church and outside of the church who are saying, yes, Jesus was really significant. But what you listen for was, was he the Son of God? Is he acknowledged as the Son of God? Do they acknowledge that he and only he could die on a cross... For the atonement of your sin and mine, uniquely Jesus the Christ. Listen and hear. Do you hear that He was raised from the dead? And that He lives and that He's coming again? You know, so many folks in church have forgotten He is coming again. There's going to be a day of reckoning for all of us. Jesus responds to him. says to the Pharisees, if I were to rebuke them and if they were to be hushed and nobody say a word or call out to God on my behalf, the very stones that exist on the ground would call out. You know what that's all about? He's saying the most significant thing that could possibly be happening in the history of the world is now unfolding in the next five or six days. I am about to go as the Messiah into Jerusalem. I will teach, I will preach, I will have a last supper, I will be arrested, and I will lose my life intentionally and I will be raised from the dead. And nature itself will call out and say, that was Jesus, the Son of God, not just a teacher. He was the one that has been promised since Adam and Eve's sin and since the human race has been separated from the presence of God. And he has come to reconcile us and to reunite us as God calls us into that relationship. I do believe the stones would call out, don't you? That's how significant this event was. And the Pharisees were missing it, and most of the people who were part of that multitude were missing that. If you look on down at the 41st verse, Jesus comes around on the side of the Mount of Olivet, where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And he starts down into the Kidron Valley, and he stops. And he looks, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's not only built on top of a mount, but it has a wall all the way around it. And here he starts down off of this mount, and his eyes catch that wall, which was built to protect the city. And he stops And he starts to cry. Scripture explains to us why he cried. He looked on the city. And he not only saw the city, but he saw all the people in the city. A city that had been blessed by God. A city that had benefited in so many ways. A city that had known prosperity under Solomon that was unequaled anywhere in the world. A city that was known as a godly city of people who believed in the true God when most other nations, if not all, believed in pagan gods. What a rich history they had. How God had reached out and put his hand on them and had blessed them, and now Jesus looks at them and he starts to cry because he knows they have squandered All of that. And then he tells us in Scripture that he can see the walls being torn down around the city. Other places in Scripture we hear that the gates were literally burned. He knows that the people who live in the city are going to be killed. We hear about children and women and men being massacred just recently. Imagine an entire city decimated. And Jesus knows what's coming on the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. And he weeps. If Jesus, in a physical way, Were to look at the United States of America today. You think he might weep? What people on the face of this earth have ever received the blessings that we have received? I have no idea why God chose to send some founding fathers over here who had character and who loved Jesus and who wanted to build a nation that would be a God-honoring nation. God has given financial prosperity. We moan and groan about what's going on in our economy today, and we have so much more than the rest of the world will ever have. God has blessed us. Do you remember the day when you didn't have to lock your house when you left? That's how I grew up, and I lived in a big city. You just didn't have to do it. And now when I leave my house this morning, I said to my wife, you think we ought to turn the burglar alarm on? I have deadbolts on every door. What a change has taken place in our country. Our children are killing children. Adults are hurting adults. People are thinking just of themselves and have no boundaries today. you think Jesus would weep when he looks at America? My wife and I, when we left here last Sunday, drove south to a commitment down in Jacksonville and, and then we rushed back so we could get back into the city to go to a... Time of Conversation. It was entitled with Oz Guinness. Any of you know that name, Oz Guinness? I don't know Oz personally. I've heard him speak on several occasions over the years. And his topic caught our attention, so we went. And his topic, and I'm paraphrasing, goes something like this. Will this empire continue to exist? Or will it go like all other empires in the history of the world? Oz pointed out some of the things that are attacking us from the outside. He pointed out some of the terrible decay that's taking place on the inside. And he, like I and lots of other folks, are aware that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this country, for the most part, has lost its distinctive. And we are not impacting our own country. Our country is impacting us. And you can see it as they are now trying to dismantle some of the uniqueness of the Christian church through laws and through regulations. Someone asked Oz during his question and answer period, is there any hope for us as a nation? You know, I thought about this part of my sermon and I thought, you know, I don't want to be negative and I don't want to be a pessimist but folks, if we keep on going like we're going for just a little bit more there's no hope at all for this country and when I talk about country I'm not talking about just the structure and I'm not talking just about prosperity or economy you know what I'm talking about? Spiritually This country is made up of 360 million people and we have fewer and fewer who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Shame on the church. Shame on the clergy. You know where the help comes? You know where the hope is? The hope is that you and I and other Christians will get our own personal homes in order and that we'll help our children be covenant children and that we'll teach them the word and that we'll be sincere with them and teach them how to pray and that we'll set an example as adults in how to live life and that we'll quit doing what we want to do and instead Do what God wants us to do. And when we become distinctive in that, the church will change because we have changed. And then there's ample opportunity for us to minister to other people. I do not know if the United States of America can be revived. I do know that you and I can be used by God to revive people and bring them into a relationship. And folks, that's what it was all about as Jesus approached Jerusalem and it's all about what's going on today. He's interested in people, not just our prosperity and our economy. Jesus makes a heartbreaking statement. He said, you were visited and you didn't know you were visited. Well, I hope he hasn't left our country yet. And I hope you and I still live in the time of visitation when God, through his grace, will work through his Son and through his Holy Spirit and do a movement of renewal in our country. But I want you to know that we do live in that visitation period and there will come a point where it will no longer be. So today today is the day for us to get serious about our walk with the Lord read your biblical history the nations that do not do that and did not do that no longer exist Jesus had a reason to show emotion when he looked at Jerusalem and surely when he looks at our country. I encourage you. Spend some time this afternoon and take a look at your own life as I will do with mine. And say, Lord, what would you like me to change? How would you like me to be a better witness for you? What is it I can do? What little thing can I do in my life with somebody in my family or a neighbor or somebody I work with? But folks, don't get up and walk out of here and leave it to somebody else. Do you understand? Do you? Let's pray together. Father, I'm sorry that your son Jesus in the midst of what truly could have been a triumphal time for the people, found himself weeping. I pray for us, Lord. I pray that so simply we'd be sincere about our faith, that we'd be into the Word and be changed by the Word, and that people would know who we are not because we stand in the street and chant, but because of the way we live. Thank you for our time together in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.